Well, good morning, ladies. Today, we are talking about a fun topic, growth. We grow. There's a universal acknowledgement that growth is good, right? Every year, in hundreds of ways, we are marking and celebrating growth. Parents mark their child's height on a door jam. Every year, hopefully, you are given a cake to remind you that another year has passed, another year of growth. You go to family reunions and retirement parties and high school reunions, and there's often slideshows of events that have taken place over the years. Um, in the working world, there's often quarterly reviews where you're expected to see profits. And in your annual review, you hope to receive positive recognition that over the past year you have grown. So it seems everywhere that the expectation is we grow. Even in our staff lounge, this is painted on the wall. We grow, just in case we forget while we're eating lunch. IBC wants us to know, we grow, and then we grow as we walk out the door. Now, have you ever seen a staff value that advertised, we stagnate? <laughs> no. What, a motivation, what about a motivational poster that read, where we are is good enough? Or, hey, decay coming soon. Okay, that would be ridiculous. None of us would have those posters or those signs in our staff lounges or at home because that is contradictory to what we know to be true. And what we know to be true is this. We grow. We were created for life and for flourishing. And so we put our time and our energy and our resources into relationships and roles and experience that help position us for growth. But let me ask you this, what about your spiritual life? Is there growth in Jesus to celebrate and mark? As you look back over the past year, are there events where you can go, yes, I see God's transforming work in my life? Or would it be more appropriate to say that right now in this season, you're stagnating? And there's no shame in that, that's just honestly assessing where are you today? And whether you realize it or not, God's greatest goal for your life is that you would become like Jesus. It's that simple. God's desire for us is that we would become like Jesus. And one of the ways we become like Jesus is by studying his scriptures and allowing it to shape our lives. So my question for you today isn't, do you study God's word? Because you're here, and that means you're at least mildly interested in what God has to say to you. And I hope you're more than mildly interested. I hope you're excited and exuberant about it. But the question that James is asking us today is, do you allow scripture to shape your life? Do you allow scripture to shape your life? So if you will, open up your Bibles with me to James 1. And James just gives us a brief little outline of this new growth in Christ. In verse 18, he talks about this birth into new life that we've been given. In verses 19 through 25, he talks about how we live into this new life. And then finally, in verses 26 through 27, he gives us indicators that we are walking out this new life. James frequently uses the growth of a plant as a metaphor for the spiritual life. So I like to think of these as little Easter eggs, if you will. Every time you see a plant growth metaphor in the book of James, know that he's pointing us to spiritual growth, and they're hidden all throughout the book. And one thing to remember is that we cannot manufacture our own spiritual growth. It is not do better, try harder Christianity. 
It is the Holy Spirit who transforms us to be like Jesus. And so James is not laying out a three-step plan of do this and then you'll reach this end goal. I'm sorry, fellow achievers, this is not a plan to implement. This is more like here are three steps to posture yourself to be more receptive to God's work in your life. So we got it? We don't produce our own fruit? Yes, good. So let's get started. As Alice taught us last week, sin follows a predictable pattern of destructive growth. In verse 15, he says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. But now, looking in verse 18, James turns his attention to describing a fruitful kind of growth, the kind of growth that we want, new life in Christ. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So this new birth in Christ is painted in stark contrast to the birth that is, resulted, that is a result of sin and desire. This is the positive growth. This is the growth that is a result of growing in God and his love and his word, not the result of sin and misplaced desire. And the heart of this growth is the self-revealing love of God. So think with me, if you will, of one of your deepest loves. Go ahead and picture that person in your mind. It might be a parent or a spouse, maybe a dear friend or a beloved family member. You see, one of the greatest joys of being in an intimate relationship with another person is being fully known and knowing fully the other person. It's that self-motivating love, that self-giving love that says, here I am, warts and all, would you know me? Would you love me as I am? And it's that vulnerable love that gives us the deepest kind of relationships. And it is out of this love, this self-revealing love, that God invites us to be in a personal relationship with him. James says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And here the word of truth refers to the good news of the gospel. So let's just pause right there and let this sink in. James tells us that God chose you, that he chose me, that he chose all of us for new birth. God chose us for the new life made possible only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that once and for all, we would be reconciled to the Father, that we might be in intimate relationship with him. And friends, that is self-giving love, that love that lays down your life for another. We were once dead to sin, but we are now alive in Christ. 1 Peter 1.23 reads, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. And sisters, our God is not far removed and distant as some suppose. Our God is knowable. He is personable. He is relational. Our God is knowable through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. Through his living word, the Bibles in which we hold in our hands, and through Jesus, the word made flesh. God is with us and he is knowable. So the first point that James makes in regard to growing up in Jesus is this. Do you know the one who offers you new life? Do you know the one who offers you new life? And this is not a rhetorical question. 
If you do not yet know the one who offers you new life, don't let this opportunity today pass you by. There is an invitation to be in relationship with the self-giving love of the Father. Respond to his invitation. James continues in verses 19 through 21 by saying in what I like to call Tiffany paraphrase, it's not enough that you know God. You must actually attune to his voice. You're living a new life now. You must receive the word of God. So the first way in which we live into this new life is by receiving the word of God. Look with me at verse 18, or I'm sorry, 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and instead humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And I hope you noticed there was another growth metaphor in this passage. We've talked about new birth and first fruits And now James is focusing on the word. That is the word of God being planted in you, letting it be rooted in your heart and in your life. And at first glance, it can look like the second part of verse 21, humbly accept the word of God, has nothing to do with everything that precedes it. And honestly, it seems a little bit like James is giving his readers just a checklist of good behavior. Listen up, watch your words, don't get angry, and just avoid all evil and and immorality. Yeah, that's it. You just got it. Go. Check, 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 check. Good. Pat myself on the back. And honestly, another checklist of good behaviors makes me tired. Because as a recovering perfectionist, I don't want another checklist. I have enough. I never get them done. They're always weighing me down. And if all James has for us is just do better, try harder morality, then I don't think it's going to go very far. Because what I need, and I'm guessing probably what you need, is genuine heart transformation. And we can't do that for ourselves. So let's look again at this passage, again focusing on the latter part of 21. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Humbly accept, or as the ESV says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Now we all know humility is not a popular virtue in our world, hashtag humility will never be a trending hashtag. And I'm betting when you go to awards assemblies at the end of the school year, there's not a humility award. I've never seen one. Maybe at a Christian private school, but not at a public school. Why? Because humility has connotations of weakness, of letting someone take advantage of you. And none of us want that. But in the kingdom of God, humility is redefined. To be humble is to have an accurate view of yourself, and of God, and of your place in your relationship with God. And it is the same humility that should characterize our interactions with others. Think about the anger mentioned in the previous verses. Anger is usually born out of a desire to control. If you think about it, we get angry usually because someone didn't do something we think they should have done, or they did do something we think they shouldn't have done. Anger is ultimately about control of a situation, of a person, of a circumstance. But notice what James contrasts anger to in this passage. It's listening. Anger, I'm sorry, listening requires a receptive heart. It's this open posture. Instead of anger, which is controlling and closed off and trying to dictate, listening 
is an open posture. It's a receptive posture. It's saying, I am willing to receive what you have for me. I am not closed off. And so we see that the opposite of anger is not self-control. It's actually listening. And it's that humility, it's that posture of receptivity that James wants us to understand characterizes that humble spirit and that growth. That humility is what gives us our ability to truly listen to the word of God, to receive the word of God such that it is rooted in our lives. And just like an instrument needs to be tuned so that it's at the right pitch and frequency, so we need to be attuned to God's word. For example, if you have a humble spirit, you're likely not going to, uh, you're likely going to both love your brother and love God's word. You're not going to say, I love God's word, I delight in reading it, and then go curse out or ram someone off the side of the road. Why not? Because it would be inconsistent. And likely, if you fail to truly listen to others, you're probably also going to carry that same attitude into your quiet time when you study God's word. Because if you have trouble listening to others, you probably lack the humility that is required to truly listen and receive God's word. And so we see in verses 19 through 21 that James is actually speaking to the same topic. He's speaking to humility. He's saying, in humility, listen, receive God's word and let it be planted deep within your hearts. Let your life be brought into harmony with God's desires for you. So let's get real practical. This has been kind of high, overarching, theoretical ab- application. But let's get real practical. We, leave, we live busy, distracted lives. So how can we practice attuning to God's word? Well, I have a few suggestions for you, and it's by no means exhaustive, but it might kind of prompt something within you. The first is that we can make God's word, the intentional study of God's word, a priority. And congratulations, you're already here. So gold stars for you. Good job. You have recognized the value of not just knowing God's word, but knowing him. And so you have diligently set aside time each week to do your lesson and come prepared thoughtfully and ready to engage in a discussion. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Two. We can memorize scripture. You know, we don't always have the luxury of just pulling out our iPhones or while we're driving, flipping through the Bible to find the correct verse. If you do that, I don't want to be on the road with you when you're driving. But if you memorize a verse, if you memorize God's word, it is literally implanted in your hearts. And you can take that verse out and pull it up at any given time. It is God's word with you. The third point is listen to an audio version of the Bible. I know a lot of us spend a lot of times in our cars, driving to work, running errands, picking up kids in the carpool line. And yes, those podcasts are great, and that music can be so encouraging. But there is also value in listening to God's word. There is something that I found to be truly transformational about listening to God's word read in a British accent. I mean, <laughs> it comes alive. And I'm like, oh, I could sit here all day and listen to this. Now, there are numerous free versions of audio Bibles. There's tons of apps. There's the U version. But this is a very real and accessible way to study God's word. The fourth one might be a little bit new to you if you're new to IBC, and it is practicing Lectio Divina. Lectio is simply a way of interacting with the scriptures in which we read a short passage a few times. We ask God to call up a particular word or phrase 
And then we invite the Holy Spirit to prompt us as to what that word or phrase might mean in our lives, what relevance it might have. This is kind of called sacred listening because it's a way of listening to scripture that's outside of our normal rhythm. So if this is something you're interested in, there is a handout on it in your table basket. And then the fifth way, but of course not the final way to receive God's word is to meditate on God's word. Simply sit and be with the word of God. Allow it to search you. Think about what you've read or studied and ponder the implications for your life. Ask God to give you wisdom on how to apply the knowledge that you've learned and ask him if there's a next step that he's inviting you to take. So the first way that James says we live into this new life is by receiving the word of God. The second way that we live into this new life is by obeying the word of God. Look with me at verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever intently looks into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have learned, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And sisters, I personally find this to be the most convicting part of this passage because James is essentially asking, do you allow scripture to shape your life? And if I'm honest, I think that many of us find ourselves there. I know I do. You see, we have a personal relationship with God. We truly love him. We study God's word. We attend church fairly regularly and praying and we're involved in Bible study. Yet sometimes when we're not seeing that fruit, when we're not seeing that growth, we get discouraged. And so we're studying God's word and we know him. Yet what we don't realize is we're stopping short of that third piece, that obedience piece, that putting into action the obeying the word of God. As Amy said a few weeks ago, knowledge is good. Peter instructs us in 2 Peter 3, 18 to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But knowledge alone isn't transforming, is it? What is transforming is obedience, knowledge put into action. Other pastors and authors have titled these verses affectionately, just do it. Just do it, as in put it into practice. You know what to do. Now go and do it. Strap up your Nikes, run that marathon. Just do it. But if it were that simple, we wouldn't be here today, right? I mean, I would stand up on stage. I'd say, just do it. You'd say, thank you, Tiffany, for the wise word. And we'd all go home and we'd do what we read. But sometimes I don't think it's that simple. Dallas Willard writes, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. We believe something when we act as if it were true. And honestly, that stings a little bit. Because belief is action lived out and followed through. So I have a question for you. What does your life say is true about who you are and who God is? What does your life say is true about who you are and who God is? Because chances are those beliefs are shaping your motivation to either run toward God and obey him 
or to run far from God and disobey him. Quite frankly, some of us aren't obeying God's word because we don't think it matters or it's antiquated or it's irrelevant or it's too strict or it's just plain difficult. There are a myriad of reasons why we don't obey God's word. But what I think it really comes down to is this. We have an affection problem, not a knowledge problem, an affection problem. We don't find God's voice through scripture to be beautiful and lovely, and therefore it hasn't captivated our hearts and our minds, and it's not truly shaping our entire lives. Look with me at verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so James is actually contrasting two approaches to scripture in this way. If you'll look at the diagram on the screen, notice there's two people, the man with the mirror and the believer with the word. And they are both intently looking into their objects. One observes, one looks into but the difference is in what they do after they are done looking at it. One forgets while the other acts. And why do you think the difference is? I'd like to propose that it's because one loves what she saw and the other did not. You see, we don't forget what we love. We don't forget what we love. Do you love God's word? The psalmist David was certainly a man known for loving God and loving God's word. He writes in Psalm 119, I reach out for your commands, which I love that I may meditate on your decrees. I delight in your law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Seriously, what prompts this sort of devotion to God and to his word? What motivated this fervency for God? And I like to propose that it's God's love for him. God's love for him is what gives David the ability to say these things about God's word. So look with me again at verse 25. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now words like freedom and perfect aren't normally used in connection with the law. So I think it needs a bit of clarification. One commentator notes that the law was fulfilled in Jesus, and so when we see the word law in this passage, we can look at it as Jesus fulfilled the law, and this is seen through his eyes, through his implementation and supplementation. So in scholarly speak, he's just saying the new covenant. So in this passage, James describes scripture as beautiful, as perfect, as giving freedom. Scholar J.A. Moyer says, God's word is paternal direction arising from love. The law of God is perfect, first, because it perfectly expresses his nature, and secondly, because it perfectly matches ours. God is love. Everything he does is motivated by love, which includes his directives and his commands, and they are given in love for his glory and for our well-being. His word is meant for our flourishing, not for our confinement. His word is a story of love, of God's pursuing love for each of us. And it contains instructions how we can be who he created us most fully to be. And that in itself brings a blessing, as is mentioned in verse 25. 
Now, if you think about it, you know this to be true. If you've ever gone to Ikea and come home with a huge box and you open it up and you see all these little mismatched pieces and tiny screws, and if you're like me, seeing it all on the living room floor, you get a little overwhelmed. And then you might start arguing with your spouse because one of you believes in using the directions and the other one does not need it because he can figure it out himself. (laughs) Now, honestly, I kid you not, some of our worst arguments are about putting together Ikea furniture and it brings out the worst in us. But I digress. So you're looking at the chaos on the floor and then you start kind of, okay, following along and you're piecing it together and you figure out that the screw fits here and you begin to see the intended goal. You realize that this particular piece of furniture is designed to be a bookcase, not a bed or a chair, but a bookcase. You know, you could put it together differently and other configurations may work, but they'll never be as good as their intended design or function. See, the bookcase was designed to hold books and we were made to be in relationship with God and to become like Jesus. So friends, we love God's word like David did, because it is an expression of God's love to us. God's word is for our good, not our harm, and it leads to the life, growth, and flourishing that God intends for us. And it is that love that motivates us to obey God because we're in that relationship. Paul states in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sisters, do you allow scripture to search you, to prompt you, to convict you, to comfort and encourage and love you? Tim Keller offers us an appropriate warning. If you have a God who only tells you what you think is right, if God never offends you, never upsets you, never contradicts you, never crosses your will, you actually don't have a living God at all. You have a God you created. And so sisters, are we prepared to allow scripture to shape our lives? Will we allow the Holy Spirit through scripture to reorder our desires? to submit our will to the Father's will, and to challenge our assumptions, will we allow scripture to search our lives? Because if we love God's word, we will remember it. And if we remember God's word, we're gonna act on it and live accordingly. We will allow scripture to shape our lives. And you know, personally, I love James. I like him because I think he was probably a no-nonsense kind of person. He said what he means. He means what he says. He says it directly, honestly. There's no ambiguity. There's no flowery language. He is going to drive his point home till we're almost nauseated with it. And his point is this. We grew up in Jesus by allowing scripture to shape our lives. So to further his argument, James is going to keep walking this out. And he's going to give us an example of the man who looked in the mirror, but then when he turned away, he forgot what he saw. Look with me at verses 26 through 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice again that this man stares deeply at the object and in this case, it's what God asks of him yet he fails to do it. He wants to be called religious, yet he fails to do what the truly religious do, 
specifically control his tongue, provide care for the helpless, and avoid worldliness. Now, when you hear the word religious, you may be thinking of Pharisees or strict legalism or your neighbor who has lots of judgments and no mercy for anyone. But a commentator says that it's actually more appropriate to define religion here as a comprehensive word for all the specific ways in which a heart relationship with God is expressed. So religion is simply faith. Faith lived out, plain and simple. And it's this faith, this new life in Jesus, that cannot be faked. It cannot be manufactured. Moyer explains it this way. A thing as potent as new birth, if it has taken place, it cannot be hidden. It cannot fail to make its presence felt. To have the life of God in us and to remain unchanged is unthinkable. And so James gives us three indicators that we are walking in this new life. We're to control our tongue, care for the helpless, and avoid worldliness. And this is not a comprehensive list that he gives us, but it is indicative of someone walking in that new life. And I think he particularly selects these three topics for a specific reason. First, James exhorts us to keep a tight rein on our tongue because we know that the words of our mouths are indicators of what is in our heart. Jesus said in the Gospels, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And remember, our willingness to obey God is shaped by whom and what we love. Second, James encourages us to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. Now, the way that we care for others is a demonstration of the care and love that God has shown to us. We are to be examples to the world of his love. In Galatians 5, it reads, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to respond in love to others because God has loved us. And finally, we're to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We are to attune ourselves to the voice of God and not to the voice of the world. The message puts it this way. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He is the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God and run from evil. So we are to live transformed lives that point others to Jesus. James' call is to obedience. We grow up in Jesus by allowing scripture to shape our lives. So I have just two next steps for you. The first is go through foundation. I've gone through foundation. I've led groups through foundation. And this is literally a catalytic experience. It is a nine-week discipleship experience that is relational. And in addition to learning um, many things, one of the things specifically you learn is about God's pursuing love. You learn the overarching story of the Bible. You learn how to read the Bible. You learn how to make the study of scripture a part of your daily rhythm. And friends, foundation is not just for those who are new to the faith. It is for everyone, including non-IBCers. It is for those asking questions, those new in their faith, those mature in the faith, those who don't even know where to find Jesus in their Bibles. It is for everyone, and you can register today for the spring session at irvingbible.org foundation. And the second invitation is this. Read the book of James through the lens of invitation. As you know, James is a very practical book, and he lists action steps. He lists ways that we are to walk in this new life. And as you read each passage every day, I don't just want you to think about correctly getting the right answers or finishing your lessons, although those are really good goals. 
Instead, I'd like you to approach it with a posture of receptivity and ask yourself, how is God inviting me to know him and to grow in my love for him through this passage? And then if the Holy Spirit prompts you to take a next step, ask God to give you that heart affection, that love for him that will then allow you to walk in obedience. So friends, God loves you and his invitation is that you would know him and be in relationship with him. May we be people who grow up in Christ-likeness by allowing scripture to shape our lives. So I'm just gonna pray quickly for us and then there will be some discussion questions on your screens. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, for choosing us, and for inviting us to know you. Thank you for your living word that we get to study each and every day. May we receive your word, may we obey it, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we live lives of transformation that point others to you. We love you and we ask this in your name, amen.